Moving Iron Podcast is proud to be part of the Global Ag Network. The network is live, so check out globalagnetwork.com for more details and updates. Now on to the show. Moving Iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving Iron time and time again. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 133 with my guest Tanner Emke. Tanner, how are you doing today? I'm great, Casey. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Well, Tanner's a repeat guest. I think you've had him on here oh, at least three times for sure. And if not fourth, this might be the fifth time I've had you on here, Tanner. But Tanner works for CoBank and he is part of their knowledge exchange group. And uh, basically, Tanner's job is to is to watch the economic conditions of the of the market for CoBank and and uh, and how that is going to affect the overall you know economic kind of output of of the ag market um, through uh, through the coming year. So, Tanner, welcome to the show again, man. Yeah, it's great to be back, Casey. All right, Tanner. I wish I had you on uh, on a time when there wasn't an, wasn't as much to talk about, but we got plenty to talk about today. So, um, first off, I want to touch on, um, you know, I hate talking about China trade. I'm kind of over it. Uh, we've talked about it for a million million times, and it just like one day it's going to be you know the best thing ever, and then it, nothing ever happens, and then they go back to the John board or they get mad at each other or whatever it is, and and, and they move on, but. There is supposed to be another round of talks coming up next week. Um, it does sound like uh, the U.S. and China are very, very close to getting something done. And, um, you know, that you, know, you look at what's going on and how that's going to affect everything. You know, I've, I've, I'm kind of to the opinion now that, yeah, China, the trade, the trade deficit that we have with China, or the trade deficit, the trade situation that we're dealing with China right now, does have an effect on the market, but I almost wonder if it never happened, if we wouldn't still be in a similar boat. So what are your thoughts on that? And then what would it mean to the overall economy if if tomorrow we woke up and China and the U.S. signed a deal and, and we were back to being best friends again? Well, uh, obviously, uh, any end to the trade war uh, would be a positive because, uh there is no such thing as a good trade war, Casey. Right. And when you operate from that assumption, the sooner we get over the, with this trade war, the better. Right. Um, the problem is uh, what, uh, how lasting uh, would a deal be? Uh, because for better or for worse, there was a deadline back in March 1st right. uh, that we would end the trade war, which we didn't. And it would have been great if we did back in March uh, so we've got a history now that deadlines don't matter. And so there is some concern among some economists um, that they're, they're, very, they're very doubtful that we'll have a conclusion of the trade war. Uh, in fact, they think uh, it will continue uh, to persist on some level uh, throughout the duration of the Trump administration, whether that's another two years or another four years. On some level, there will be trade protectionism for sure. And so the concern is uh, what level of uh, hostility, trade hostility, will we have with China? And that doesn't end, but at what level will it persist? 
but that being said, uh, if we can have, if we can go back to where we were prior, uh, elimination of the tariffs that we had on their uh, on the steel and uh, aluminum imports, and then their retaliatory retaliatory tariffs were lifted. Uh, that would be a fantastic uh, move forward for sure, and we need that deal done. The U.S. would benefit. Um, uh, substantially by having that deal done sooner rather than later. Um, but there's a, a whole lot of things going on with this, uh, this trade war, Casey, that, um, that really raises uh, some questions over what concessions will, will be made, uh, how beneficial will it be for the U.S., and how, uh, how long-lasting will it be. Um, we've already suffered uh, some deterioration of our market share uh, in China, um, and a lot of those uh, trading channels have been have moved to other suppliers. Uh, soybeans, obviously, have been sourced out of other locations, uh, like South America. Uh, some coming in from uh, places like Russia, even uh, other oil seeds, anyway. And so, once those once those trade uh, routes have been reestablished. Um, it take, it's, it's a really hard thing to get those trade routes back, especially if a trade war persists over a longer time as it becomes more and more difficult to get those, uh, to get those markets back. So any resolution that we get to end the trade war and the lifting of those tariffs uh, and the lifting of the retaliatory tariffs specifically, that is going to be a positive uh, for U.S. agricultural markets. And uh, ultimately, that would be a positive for um, U.S. farmers. So, um, the way I understand the, the trade war as it is as it stands right now, uh, let's make some uh, distinction first, Casey. Um, this is not a uh, a trade uh, a formal trade agreement like, say, for instance, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That was a formal agreement inked by a number of countries and passed by their respective legislative bodies. That's formal. All those terms are in, are in ink about how they're going to be uh, enforced, uh, how things are going to be monitored, all, those kind of, all that stuff is made official. There's really nothing official in the, in the deal with China. This is more like a temporary ceasefire if we got a deal. Uh, if Trump and uh, Xi Jinping were to ink out a deal here soon, um, it, it's not a formal agreement because a formal agreement is passed, has to pass through Congress. Congress has to vote on it and agree to it, and so does the legislative body over in China, and then it becomes formalized. Well, that doesn't exist here. There's no uh, formalized enforcement mechanism that's in place and transparent for everybody to understand that if we go back to doing X, Y, Z, well, we will suffer... Uh, ABC punishment, so to speak. All that stuff would be lined out in writing and clear for everybody to understand. That That's not here. So whatever we get in this agreement, what comes after it? Well, it'll be, the markets will respond favorably, uh, but there's always going to be that concern that we can easily go back to it uh, because Trump uh, imposed... Uh, the tariffs unilaterally, specifically we're talking about the steel and aluminum tariffs, and then all the subsequent tariffs that followed uh, as the trade war escalated. And so that can be that could happen again. 
Uh, there's nothing really formalizing what would not allow that uh, or what would happen if uh, China reneged on uh, the agreement with Trump. So there's always that concern that really how permanent is this uh, agreement if we were to have one? Uh, the other thing, uh, Casey, is that the markets have been anticipating uh, a, a negotiation with China for quite some time. Uh, the Chinese have committed to buying uh, a number of uh, U.S. products, namely pork, soybeans, natural gas, uh, so they can help uh, narrow the, the bilateral trade deficit between the U.S. and China. Well, that's all well and good. That's, those are beneficial uh, sales. Those sales are beneficial for the U.S. Uh, those were in good faith to help move these negotiations forward. But really, uh, Casey, China was going to buy those products anyway. So how much of a uh, change in the relationship have we had so far? Uh, if that's any hint of what we're going to, what, what kind of negotiation or what kind of resolution to this trade war we're going to have in a uh, negotiation between Trump and uh, Xi Jinping, then that would suggest that a, an agreement uh, is not going to be materially or um, substantially different than the relationship we had prior. Uh, so that's of concern. Uh, is, it was all this? Was all of this? Uh, uh, trade war really going to get us anything. So there's a lot of head-scratching about what is really going to change. The other thing is that the, because this is a non-formalized agreement, uh, because it's more of like a memorandum of understanding or an MOU between Trump and Xi, Xi Jinping, uh, that as soon as Trump leaves office, all bets are off. There's no guarantee that uh, that that China is not going to go back to their old ways of what they know how to do very well, which is to uh, steal from other countries and pirate and uh, to, you know, to steal their technology. So I, I, I'm, a, I'm a little on the fence about uh, what uh, negotiation really means. I, again, I think, it's a, it, I think a lot of economists are very hopeful uh, that something would happen you know, in terms of... Uh, in, finding better ways to uh, do business with China, especially with intellectual property rights and forced technology transfer. But um, long-term, it's, it's a real question mark of how anything would be uh, enforced and how to keep this agreement in, uh, in place. Uh, there's, no, there's really no indication that it could be. My other question is, okay, so we've got this stuff going on with the trade thing, and just like you talked about, it's there's there's really no – it's just more of a gentleman's agreement, I mean, for lack of a better term, you know, that's going on here. It, it could get inked and could get voted on b between um, the two uh, the two governments and they could come together and actually have something come out of this. Um, do, you, do you think that there's a possibility that it could just be that, hey, you know, we'll just, we'll just agree on this together and, you know, we'll see what happens down the road? Do you, do you think it's heading that way, or do you feel like there could be some, you know, binding agreement between the two countries? Well, what Trump wants most is to show that he has a win uh, heading into the 2020 election. And now that, uh, you know, you have here just here recently, you know, Joe Biden entered the race for the uh, Democratic uh, as a, as a, one of the many Democratic nominees for president that's going to run against uh, Trump. Mm -hmm. um, Trump wants to show that he has a win, that he has progress. And so there's motivation there to show that things have changed with China. 
and probably for the next, uh, for sure, the next year or so, um, China's going to try to make good on whatever negotiations were made. They're going to buy a lot of stuff from the United States. Um, but is that something that, is that, will that momentum fade uh, after the first year? Uh, a lot of people are thinking this is, again, really not something that's going to be, uh, going to change the relationship materially between the U.S. and China. And in fact, when it comes to uh, the agricultural exports, we may actually end up in a losing position because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, once those uh, other export channels have been uh, established, it's hard to get them back. Even after we've inked a deal with China, uh, you've got uh, buyers over in China that have already established new relationships and uh, other uh, areas of uh, the world have increased their acreage. And so what's the point of going back to the United States when you've got a more diversified uh, uh, market to buy from? Uh, so, there, you know, there's going to be more soybeans out of Argentina and Brazil. There's going to be more canola that you can get out of uh, Canada, perhaps. And there's more uh, oil seeds you can get out of uh, the former Soviet Union or the Black Sea region. So... Even if we get something, uh, um, even though even if Trump and Xi come to an agreement, those export channels are are, are already uh, in place. So, again, it, trying to figure out what's what will happen long term. I mean, that's always going to be a problem. But here in the short term, we can definitely say the U.S. will benefit from an, uh, a conclusion to the trade war. But are we going to go back to where we were before? Uh, it's not looking like we will. It's look like it's looking like we lost market share over in China. Well, losing market share is never a <clears throat> never a good thing, and and that that's for, that is for sure. But with the Asian swine fever that's going on over there, I mean, how how much how much are we going to benefit from that? I mean, I look at that, and there's there's a lot of stuff going there. I mean, yeah, they can you can you can get a lot of pigs back in production pretty quick just because of their gestation cycles and how many how many uh, piglets they have in every litter and those kind of things but you know that does open yeah. the door to a lot of different stuff whether it be beef or poultry or fish or whatever it might be do you feel like there yeah. could be some some just gain there anyway just because of of the situation they're in well yeah absolutely and you brought up a very good point uh, african swine fever uh changes the game uh in many 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 big ways uh, we'll see what happens with African swine fever, but uh, uh, just to recap on what's happening there, uh, the Chinese government has announced that uh, said about 21% of their sow population um, has been lost because of uh, African swine fever. Uh, there's no vaccine for this virus. There's, there's no way to cure it. The only way to stop it is to cull herds uh, or to quarantine a farm, and then all the pigs have to be eliminated. You know, they get bulldozed into a pit. And so uh, it's a pretty serious situation over in China. And um, fortunately, the virus it only affects hogs. It doesn't affect uh, beef. It doesn't affect uh, birds or cattle or anything like that. It only uh, affects hogs. But half of the world's hogs are in China. So when 20% of their hog herd or their sow herd disappears, that it has huge implications on the world pork market. And then by extension, uh, to backfill that demand for pork uh, 
in, in lieu of that uh, pork supply that has uh, disappeared, that's going to take a lot, that could potentially take a lot of poultry and beef. So the U.S. stands, as it is right now, to benefit substantially uh, from uh, African swine fever uh, running rampant in China. And so in that case, uh, personally, any deal with the Chinese Inc. with the United States uh, here coming up to end this trade war uh, would almost uh, not necessarily be uh, that important anymore because they're going to have to buy from us anyway. Uh, for agricultural products, anyway. Um, and so, just put it in context, uh, you know, the, the, the reduction in their hog uh, population would more than exceeds the ex- total exportable pork supplies in the entire world. Right. So, just put that into context here. Mm-hmm. If all of the world's pork exports went to China to fill that gap, it still wouldn't be enough. Right. And so you've got this huge uh, hole of animal protein demand that would need to be filled by competing proteins, um, namely uh, beef and uh, poultry. So we uh, pork producers right now are benefiting quite well uh, because of this. We've had a huge uh, spike in uh, lean hog futures on the Chicago board of the CME. And, um, and so uh, pork producers right now are doing very well. They're, uh, they're inking some pretty good profits. Now, here's the, here's the other side of this argument that we have to be very careful of. What if African swine fever came to the United States? Now, that would be disastrous. On so many levels, I couldn't even, I can't, it's, it's hard to fathom. Because right now in the United States, we've got, a, we've got overcapacity of production and processing for animal protein. And this is across the entire sector. I mean, we're talking about pork and chicken and beef. Now, if we had uh, African swine fever come to the United States, our export program disappears immediately. I mean, it's lights off because, uh, or lights out rather, because nobody wants to import that virus into their country. So in order to protect themselves, they're going to have to cancel all of their pork orders uh, or all of their orders of uh, pork or pork-related products in the United States. It'd be like the BSC outbreak back in, what was it, 2003, mm-hmm. when, uh, when, the, when uh, we had uh, bad cow disease, as it's called, or BSC, yep. uh, was found in the United States, uh, came in from Canada. Uh, the beef export market disappeared instantly because all these countries need to protect themselves. So if we have African swine fever in the United States, we lose all of our export business. And right now, 20%, 26% of, uh, of the market for pork is overseas for us. And so you take 20%, 26% of our production and try to force that onto the consumer here in the United States, the U.S. consumer just can't eat that much pork. And so what's going to happen, you're going to have a lot of culling of herds. You're going to have a lot of farmers that expanded who, uh, who are now going to have uh, they're going to have pork that they can't send anywhere. Uh, the U.S. market will be absolutely saturated. And it'll take time uh, in order for those embargoes to be lifted or for those export, for those bans to be lifted and for us to regain uh, those export markets. 
So that's on the that's the other side of African swine fever is if it came to the United States. It's not obviously it's not here right now. It's only out. It's only in, in China or excuse me, Asia at large, uh, and um, in Europe, places like that. Uh, so right, so right now we're okay, and we're benefiting from that. And uh, U.S. farmer pork uh, producers are doing very well uh, because of it. And hopefully, it stays that way. Yeah. But um, back to the nego- the trade negotiation and the point you were making earlier. You're absolutely right. Uh, this is a game changer. And um, you know, the Chinese would probably lift their ban on U.S. poultry because four years ago uh, we had avian uh, flu, uh, yeah, avian flu here in the United States, and we had a lot of uh, chickens that we had to cull. And uh, the Chinese, uh, they put a ban on U.S. chicken. Uh, well, that ban will probably be lifted if this uh, problem with uh, ASF continues to grow. They're going to need to fill that hole with uh, some other uh, animal protein uh, or a combination of animal proteins being uh, beef, pork, and chicken, and so they would lift that ban. And so all of the proteins would probably benefit very well uh, from uh, from what's going on in China right now. Uh, so anyway, that's kind of where we're at right now with uh, ASF. Hopefully, it doesn't come to the United States, and as long as it stays out of this country, uh, we stand to benefit very well. Is there a possible way, a possible chance that because of the amount of pork that China is going to be out now, um, that it could open the door for a more long-term U.S. beef export to China because of maybe taste change over time or uh, people don't trust the hog supply or, or whatever it might be, could that open a door that could be more um, more of a, a staple export of ours to, to China? Well, uh, that would be, if that would materialize, yeah, that would be wonderful uh, for U.S. exporters uh, and U.S. producers. Um, it really it comes down to the Chinese, uh, you know, and what the, Chinese, what the Chinese consumer wants. Uh, pork is their number one protein, their number one animal protein, and uh, but that's uh, that's uh, competing now with uh, chicken. Though uh, chicken has become quite a bit more uh, popular with the Chinese consumer. Uh, so if there's any protein uh, that would appear to benefit uh, a lot faster, would be uh, it'd be uh, chicken probably. Beef though would uh, benefit as well. Um, but I mean, poultry can uh, respond faster to that demand, and there's there's evidence of the Chinese consumer uh, liking po- uh, poultry or chicken, and so yeah, over long long term, um, yeah, that, that may be the case. But one thing that the Chinese government is intent on is they want to make sure that they are food sufficient, uh, especially with pork. So they're going to want to rebuild. Uh, that pork or the, the swine herd as quickly as possible. It may take a few years to get back to where they were before, but they're going to rebuild that population. And uh, they would rather import uh, soybeans and grow the corn there in China and feed that to pigs and uh, and have a sustainable local uh, pork supply uh, for the Chinese consumer. Now, could they start importing, or if poultry imports and beef imports from the United States uh, could that become more of a staple? Uh, it's possible. Uh, but the Chinese government uh, has shown in the past that they are very committed to making sure that 
that the Chinese com- consumer has locally sourced uh, animal protein, and they'll import uh, grain uh, to, to make up the balance. That's what they've yeah, done sure. in the past. But okay. Perhaps things could change in the future. I got you. Okay, so the idea that that this could be just a long-term deal um, for the U.S. is probably you're right. They do. They they stockpile a lot of stuff, like their rice supplies and their corn supplies and their wheat oh, yeah. supplies and stuff like that. They have decades worth of stuff on hand. You know what I mean? So it's just it's a it's it's a different mindset than than what we we're used to seeing over in the United States for sure, for sure. Okay, so yeah, well, they've got a, over a year's worth of supply of wheat, so they could have an entire crop failure in China and then some. Right, and they'll still be fine. Yep. And uh, likewise with corn and uh, rice and cotton. I mean, they can they can withstand a little while uh, without having to have any imports. Okay. So let's talk about what you see, you know, with, with the things, that, uh, w- with the economic conditions we see right now. Um, you know, I to me it feels like 2019 is, I, I'm very bullish about the end of the year, and I really feel like there's going to be a turning point here later in 2019. But it also feels like it's the toughest part of this downturn so far. I mean, equity positions have been chewed up. Um, you know, there's just guys that are that are struggling to, to to scrape together enough to even go farm this year, even find lenders to lend them money to go to get operating notes to go farm. So, talk about what you see happening right now um, with the economic condition of the uh, of rural America in the in in the farm economy and and how you see that heading out towards the end of the year. Well. Uh like a lot of uh, agricultural economists out there, um, I really don't have uh, great news uh, that things are going to be improving. Uh, when you look at, I mean, it's pretty well talked about out there that you know, we still have uh, an abundance of uh, agricultural commodities uh, in the marketplace, uh, both uh, in the United States and in the world. Uh, we also have... Um, you know, a very, uh, as it remains, a very tenuous trade situation. So that's going to remain uh, a depressing factor. Perhaps even if we get a deal inked uh, with the Chinese, there's some questions of, like I mentioned earlier, will these will this trade uncertainty persist? Well, that's bad for the business climate. Um, so having that hanging over the economy is not a good thing either. Uh, at the same time, uh, we're starting to see an uptick in uh, fertilizer prices. Uh, we're continually seeing uh, the stressing of balance sheets uh, with farmers and ranchers. Uh, we're seeing um, you know, production expenses almost across the board going up. Uh, the bright side maybe this for this year for farmers and ranchers is that uh, interest rates will probably... Uh, not increase as much as they did in the past because the Fed is signaling that they won't increase rates this year uh, any more than they did uh, last year, that they're probably going to hold static where they're at. Um, so the cost structure of agriculture is still elevated. The commodity price, the, the agricultural commodity uh, basket is still depressed. Um, and so... Really, you've got to change one of these factors here. You've got to change, costs have to go down or uh, cash receipts from higher commodity prices have to go up. And there's really no indication that either of those two things are going to happen. And so uh, what's really keeping a lot of farmers uh, hanging on right now is the, the strong value in their land that they're uh, borrowing against. That's keeping a lot of farmers 
uh, in business. But still, you're seeing uh, Chapter 12 um, uh, farm uh, bankruptcies uh, tick up every single year. Uh, they're not surging. They're just kind of gradually increasing. But one thing to keep in mind is that <clears throat> that doesn't account for farmers that are taking early retirement. Uh, there's okay. still a lot of farmers out there that are financially stressed. Excuse me. <clears throat> and uh, they're not prepared to declare bankruptcy, but instead they're just taking an early exit. And they're going to be renting out their farm ground and selling their machinery. And so that, that's kind of good. That, that, those numbers are hard to find. You can't get really solid numbers on that. But that does mask uh, some of, the, of what's going on when you look at uh, farm bankruptcies. Uh, that are being very, that are very slow, and they're increase. Well, a lot of people are still leaving the industry without having to declare bankruptcy. Gotcha. So, uh, the outlook is that you know this, the commodities markets are still going to remain uh, fairly soft, and it's going to really take a weather disaster somewhere in the world in order to cause, uh, in to cause a material change in commodity prices. Uh, so. It's kind of, uh, we're in this holding pattern uh, that we've been in for the last uh, few years, Casey. Uh, it's just a, we know, we know the stress is there. Uh, we know the stress is persisting. Uh, we know there's a lot of farmers that are taking an early exit. Uh, but there's also a lot of farmers that came into the correction uh, that, are, that were very financially solvent because they remembered back the 1980s. And they knew not to make that mistake again by taking out a lot of debt at the peak of the market. And so it's just this kind of like a holding pattern. We're still just kind of, uh, it's just like a slow, uh, gradual building of financial stress. It's not, uh, I would say if there's any one sector of the ag economy uh, that is stressed more than anyone else, it would be the dairy sector. And uh, we've seen a lot of uh, dairies um, exit the industry as evidenced with uh, bankruptcies, um, and uh, herd numbers declining. Uh, but really, outside of dairy, uh, it, just, it just remains a persistently stressful environment, but it's not like the 1980s. And there's really no sign yet that it will be. Now, everybody is looking at what's going on with land values versus net farm income and saying, well, when you have a 50% drop in net farm income from 2013 to today, there has to be some sort of correction in land values, and that hasn't happened. And everyone keeps saying eventually it will, but that's kind of uh, the question on everyone's mind. When will land values correct? Uh, that That is a really big unknown that has a lot of people uh, scratching their heads and frankly concerned because there's so much, uh, so many farmers out there borrowing against their equity in their land. So, the question it really is what's going to happen in that three to five year period, uh, or even further out than that. That's when we. That's the real question. Uh, that's when we could see perhaps something bigger happen uh, with land values. Uh, it's just that in the when you look at right now, 2019, uh, it doesn't look like we're going to see any serious. Uh, change in direction from where we're at right now. So what's your, I mean, that's, that's a been weighing on my mind. I've been talking about that for a while. Um, you know, when land prices switch and there's a flip or whatever there might be uh, because of that, that's when you're going to start seeing this, this huge, I mean, 
with guys that are barely hanging on with the equity that they have in their lane, and that's what they're that's kind of their anchor. When they don't have that anchor anymore, man, that's going to cause a huge problem, just like you alluded to earlier. So, what's your opinion of uh, of of land prices, and where, and do you see them being stable through this whole thing, or do you see there could be a possibility of a dip coming in that that could that could cause something like this to happen? Well, the land market is pretty regional. Remember, uh, some areas of the country are experiencing more stress than others, and when you look at land values, especially in the Corn Belt. Uh, in, the, in the northern plains or in the, the central Great Plains, that's where you're seeing uh, land values soften or over the over the past five years. Other areas of the country, they have not. They've actually gone up. Uh, so when you when you look at it in that way, you have to say, okay, let's instead of looking at uh, land values nationwide, let's look at where the stress is uh, focused, and that's going to be the 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 crop belt or the grain belt, uh, where corn, wheat, and soybeans are grown. Um, and so looking at it from that view, um, we're going to have to see, uh, I don't know, when can we see a drop in land values? My goodness. Um, if I, if I, honestly, Casey, if I had the answer to that question, um, I would own my own island and have my own yacht. I mean, you know the story. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, I mean, I'm yeah. not that smart. I, I wish I was. Uh, but there's a lot of ag economists out there asking the same question. Nobody can really pinpoint it. No one can say, well, land values are going to drop you know, 50% in the year 2022. Um, there's nobody saying that because this has been pretty perplexing so far with, land, uh, with net farm income down so much already and land values uh, only being mildly lower. Uh, that already has people perplexed. But there's things that are different this time around than, than what happened in the 1980s. Number one, we have really, really, really cheap money. Uh, interest rates, even though some people would argue that uh, that since they're going up, that's been a stressor on farmers, and it has. Historically, we still really have very, very cheap interest rates. Money is just uh, not hard to find out there. You can get a loan from anybody almost. I was talking to one person, uh, one uh, banker here recently, and he was saying in uh, his town up in uh, Washington State, uh, in a town of I think twenty five hundred people or twenty two hundred people, there were six banks. Wow! Okay. Uh, I have, it's a lot of a lot of banks for a town that small. Uh, so interest rates are really cheap. It's a very competitive market, and so that has saved a lot of farmers, uh, and also. The nature of farming has changed, or the size of farms have changed. Uh, farms today are much, much bigger. They're much more efficient. They're better managed. You know, they're under better management, typically, anyway, compared to what, you know, when you have uh, many decades of consolidation, uh, you're going to have more efficiency in management. And so that's changed. So... When you add up all these things that are different, it's hard to say, okay, well, let's find an analog industry or an analog year where we can say, okay, after X number of years, when the, when the industry has become more, more consolidated and more efficient, then we can see uh, the correction tail off in 10 years. There's really nothing to look at as an analog year or an analog industry, you know? Um, so... Yeah, things are just different this time around. Farming is different. Uh, the nature of farming is different. Uh, the you know the interest rates are different. Um, 
So I, it's really hard. It's really hard to say uh, because this is such a new territory. Now, in hindsight, when we look back, we're all going to say, well, of course we saw that coming. I'm so smart. I knew exactly. I could have told you exactly what's going to happen uh, when the question of land markets was going to happen in this year. But looking forward, it's really hard to do. Right. It's really hard to pick, uh, pinpoint where that's going to happen. Um, and so uh, if you want me to put a date on when land prices are going to drop 50% or whatever, I, I can't do it. No, no, I don't, I want, have, I don't want that. Because if if you know we need to keep it, if you know me and you just need to keep it a secret between the two of us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's just it's just an impossible uh, thing to engage. I mean, we can we can try to look at what's going on globally with other markets, but uh, really, it's just really really hard to pinpoint that. Yeah, no, there's that. Yeah, there's just uh, that would that is difficult, but. You know, when, when everything was going on, we had the, you know, huge $8 corn and, and different stuff like that. It seemed like land was prices were driven, obviously, by commodity prices, but also by speculators, too, were buying land to, to speculate and, and to try to make a profit on. Um, do you see much of that still happening? Yeah, there's uh, there are uh, institutional investors out there. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, as a matter of fact, he uh, works for a fund that... Uh, that by that is in uh, he he specializes in agricultural land, um, and he's on the hunt. And he'll tell you it's really hard to find good quality farm ground that's going to re- uh, get the uh, capitalization rates or the cap rates that you're looking for. Um, you know, let just put this into context. Uh, you know, cap rates on farmland, which is a cap rate, is when you take the rental. Value divided by the far, value of the land. So if you, just to make the math really, really easy here, uh, let's say you buy a piece of ground for $1,000 an acre and you rent it out at $30 an acre, well, your capitalization rate is 30 divided by 1,000. That's 3%. Okay. Well, if you want 3% on your money, look at the 10-year bond. Right. Yeah. That's risk-free. Right, and uh, you get some tax benefits from it also. What's the point of buying farmland in Iowa with a three percent cap rate when all you have to do is uh, just go to just go buy a, a bond? Yeah. So uh, when you've got that competitive pressure, uh, you know there are a lot of people that a lot of outside investors that said, you know, this just isn't worth my risk. I mean, farming is high risk business. You got weather. You got Politics, you got trade, you've got regulation, you got to deal with land um, or tenants, and you never know what you're going to get there. Why do I need to have that headache for three percent? Right. I can I can still buy a bond and get three percent there. Yep. yep. So uh, there's a lot. There there are outside investors who have uh, tired have become tired uh, of uh, trying to find a good quality farm ground. Um, my friend who runs a fund, he says, he tells me he says no far more than he ever says yes. Uh, it's just hard to find a good investment in farm ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless you're a farmer and uh, you're not looking at cap rates, you're just looking at uh, dollars per acre return. Well, that's a different story. Farmers are kind of coming at it from a different angle. Uh, and if they're looking at farming for multiple generations, uh, they'll, they'll take that risk on the on that piece of ground that comes up across the road, of course, they'll pay any price almost. There's a piece of ground that's just down the road from the farm, yeah. 
so, you know, that element is uh, is always going to be there. But as for outside investors, you know, there's always going to be those uh, those outside investors that are looking uh, to diversify their portfolios. But there's it's just not uh, there just aren't a lot of outside investors clamoring to get into farm ground. Yeah. It's not. There's not a lot of people just dying to do it yeah. because they've got other options. Well, they're much safer options. Like buying a, buying a bond. Why do you? Why buy land? Why just buy a bond? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. That that is true. That is very true. So this is why I like having you on here, man. Because you you kind of you you shoot it straight, but you also uh, you know you don't make it boring. So that that's that's one of the reasons why I like having you on here. But. So you're you're looking at you keeping it real, bro. I like it. Um, <laughs> you have uh, let's take a look at what's going on in the rest of the world now. So you, you got there's a epic drought going on over in um, you know Australia. Um, they had some drought yep. issues last year in Ukraine, southern Russia, the Black Sea region. Um, you know when it comes to wheat production, that that's the biggest. Those are the two biggest areas that really have a lot of wheat production. And then what you see happening down in South America right now. Um, they're kind of on again, off again with with dryness um, right now. I think they're in pretty good shape, but yeah, I mean, overall global economy, it looks like to me that we're going to have a lot of grain back on the market. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, that, those are the numbers that I'm hearing from other people, or the numbers would uh, point to that that we're going to see a continuation of uh, ample supplies globally in the grain markets, uh, ample supplies in animal protein, and um, you know, when you've got uh, such a com- saturated market globally, it's really hard to paint a picture, a bullish picture for agriculture here in the U.S. Other parts of the world are going to do a lot better uh, than the U.S. Um, because even though uh, they're all uh, dealing with uh, similar commodity prices or the, the same fact, the same facts that we just talked about of an abundance of supply, some countries are dramatically different in their economics and so, therefore, are going to be motivated to continue to produce and export. Let's say, for let's talk, for instance, uh, down in Brazil. Uh, they've got a much cheaper currency than the United States. And, uh, you know, if they continue to have uh, political problems down there and uh, problems with corruption and with uh, their economy, uh, that's going to be weak on their, their, uh, their uh, uh, the currency. And so, therefore... That's bullish on their commodities because commodities globally are traded in dollars. And if the U.S. economy remains strong and their economy is weak, uh, that means their currency is going to drop in value. So they're going to take that cheap currency um, that they sold their uh, grain for, turn around and get dollars, and they're going to get paid a lot of money because the dollar is so strong compared to their local currency. So the incentive there is to expand acreage. Same thing, uh, not just in South America, but go over to the former Soviet Union. You just mentioned uh, wheat production there a little bit ago. Uh, same thing there. When you've got um, weakness in, say, uh, the Russian ruble, well, that's going to incentivize uh, Russian farmers to expand production. Well, right now, the hope here is that with strong oil prices, that is going to raise the value of the Russian ruble because the Russian uh, is a uh, is a petro state. Uh, their econ- their currency is so or their because their economy is so dependent on uh, 
oil and natural gas, their currency is very uh, tracks very closely to the price of oil. So here recently we had the price of oil go up. And so if this remains so, uh, if oil remains at elevated levels and the, and the Russian ruble remains strong, that's going to disincentivize uh, farmers from expanding acreage. That's going to tell them, to, uh, because they're going to get paid less, that's going to uh, cause them to perhaps reduce acreage or maybe put on less fertilizer and not be so uh, ambitious in their yields. And so potentially that might be a positive. Because of the strong oil price, uh, that would be that would translate to a strong ruble, and that might decrease grain production in that part of the world. That's, I mean, this that we're kind of we're really talking, we're really trying to squeeze the water out of a rock here, trying to find uh, good news for U.S. ag producers, especially for uh, uh, wheat producers. But that is a possibility longer term. Right. Uh, we might be able to pick up some export markets overseas if we do see a reduction in uh, Russian wheat production. And same with Ukraine. Uh, that whole area over there is uh, uh, very competitive on wheat. So, yeah, globally, um, yeah, we're still dealing with abundant uh, supplies, and it's just really hard to paint a bullish picture when you've got those fundamentals. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, ton of stuff going on, man. There's always it's always I love talking with you, Tanner. It's a it's a great. It's a great thing, especially with a fellow Kansan on here. I, I enjoy that my, as as much as, as anybody <laughs> does. So, so Tanner, if, if folks want to reach out to you and and ask you questions, how would they do that? Well, they can always uh, go to the Coolbank website. Uh, it's coolbank.com. And Knowledge Exchange is our uh, is the name of our research department. And you can reach me through our website, uh, or you can send me an email. Uh, it's my uh, it's a T E H M K E at uh, right on right on and also make sure you check out your what's your twitter handle uh tanner emke tanner emke there you go easy enough so check out tanner on twitter he's got some good stuff he posts good stuff out there so tanner as always man thanks for being uh being a guest on the podcast and i look forward to talking to you again man Thanks a lot, Casey. Good to be back. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast, now part of the Global Ag Network. If you'd like to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. You can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com. You can also visit the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel and watch Market Roundup with Chip Nellinger, Sean Hackett, and Angie Setzer. Also, Tax News with Glenn Birnbaum. Please visit movingironllc.com. Here you can find information, details, and updates for the 2019 Moving Iron Summit in Nashville, Tennessee. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, and globalagnetwork.com. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour. Out. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving